Welcome to the Maritime Podcast. This is Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. In this latest episode, we are in conversation with Philip Clausius, founder and managing partner of Transport Capital. Just to start off, I'd like to ask Philip if you could provide an overview of trends that you're seeing in the ship finance market at the moment. As I look back over the last, call it 10 years, we have seen a dramatic change in the ship finance landscape. We have come from an industry in the past where the banks have very much dominated the industry. And um, most noteworthy in that regard is also that um, the pricing differential between the best and the weakest credits in the industry was not very pronounced. In other words, weak credits in the heydays of the 2007s to call it 2009 would attract pricing of call it L plus two and the best credits maybe of L plus one U. So you can see a delta of only 1%. These times have dramatically changed. Players have changed. We are now seeing a market where new building finance to a very, very large extent today is dominated by the Chinese leasing companies as they attract a big portion of new building orders. Interesting Chinese leasing companies today even finance Korean new buildings. And in many respects, the banking market plays more of a supporting role. What is also an increasing trend is that certain banks do no longer want to provide directly loans to ship owners, but prefer to provide back leverage to the Chinese leasing companies. So a lot of the very active uh, ship finance banks um, actually lend to the likes of ICBC leasing, BOCOM leasing, etc., which has a nice side effect that these are so-called double recourse structures, which are not only secured on the project, uh, the ship, the lease, but indeed they are secured also on the guarantee of the Chinese leasing company, which obviously attracts a very, very low pricing because you're talking about very strong credits. So we are today in a market where the best credits in the industry, the top tier shipping companies, are very well banked by both the traditional lenders as well as in particular the Chinese leasing companies. But the second tier, I would say the mid-sized ship owners, have increasingly difficulty in accessing funding from the bank market and they need to resort more and more to what I call boutique banks or alternative lenders, which obviously comes at a very, very different price point. And uh, just to go back to my earlier example, if the credit spread differential in the boom years was 1%, the credit spread differential today between the best and the worst credits in the industry I shouldn't use the word worst, maybe I should say weakest, is closer to 8 or 9%. So, I mean, if you are wanting to finance, if you have a very small fleet and you don't have a corporate structure and you want to finance a ship on a non-recourse basis at a higher leverage, you can easily pay 8, 9, 10% or even more than 10% in today's market. 
What does that result in? Uh, that obviously drives consolidation because um, such capital cost differential is frankly not sustainable for the smaller companies. And that's why we have seen a significant wave of consolidation. But at the same time, we need to be realistic. Shipping remains a highly fragmented industry and we've got a long way to go. And ship owners in their very tradition tend to be very inventive. And um, if there is a new source of capital, they will find it and they typically find it fast. And uh, shipping is a global business. And from time to time, new sources of capital come into the market. But what I have noticed is that capital, generally speaking, has become a lot more disciplined. We have obviously come from an industry which has resulted in massive oversupply, where capital tended to be not very disciplined. I would also say in the early years of the Chinese leasing companies, there was not a lot of discipline and lease finance was provided from the Chinese very casually, if you can use that term. That has changed. The underwriting criteria of the Chinese leasing companies today are not that dissimilar from how the banks approach the business. So overall, which is a positive for shipping, capital has become a lot more disciplined. And you know you can see now that we are enjoying generally a freight environment that is positive, if we exclude maybe the tanker market right now. But all of that has not yet resulted in what I would call reckless ordering of new capacity. And that has a lot to do with capital being disciplined. Maybe that as an as, as a first overview of, of how the market has shifted. I mean, just looking at that from the, the point of view of a smaller to mid-sized owner, I mean, some of the rates you quoted there would seem extremely high to make any sort of return in shipping. So would you see more consolidation coming through or what do these owners do? What kind of financing are they accessing? As I said, I mean, I can tell you because we are serving the mid-market here with our company and we are helping. In fact, we have very much focused in the last few years on helping owners uh, that have been temporarily frozen out of the bank market because of their credit situation. We all know we have come through difficult times in shipping for many. And look, this is long term. This capital cost is not sustainable for these owners because we know what the long term return of capital in the industry is, um, uh, which is probably around 8%. So if you have, your debt cost is higher than the total return on capital, uh, at some point it will become uh, uh, very, very tight. But remember, these are owners in many instances that have been left in very, very difficult positions because either they are in default of their obligations towards the banks or they were about to go into default and they have been pressurized to refinance. And when you then refinance, you obviously take the options that are available to you. So I don't see this all negative. There is a, a group of non-bank lenders that has established itself as a very good partner for many ship owners that is sort of at the midpoint of this price range. And that is exactly what the middle market needed 
And these structures, by and large, do work. What you have to bear in mind, of course, is that these financings apply mostly to middle-aged chips and not to new buildings. So the amounts you finance tend to be smaller because you're not dealing with new buildings. New buildings, as I said earlier, have almost become the exclusive purview of the of the Chinese leasing companies or ECA-type structures in the countries of build, i.e. China, Korea, and Japan. But anything that is second-hand financing has become incredibly difficult in the traditional banks. And that business either goes to the small boutique banks or it goes to the so-called alternative lenders, which come at a different price point, but at least they provide the finance and the benefit they bring with them is that they are much more flexible in structuring amortization profiles, etc., etc., whereas the banks tend to be very, very rigid in terms of how they approach these transactions. Okay, there's a couple of points I want to pick up on there. Firstly, you, you said for new buildings, it's almost exclusively the territory of the, the big leasing houses. So that, does that include the sort of smaller new buildings as well? Because I tend to see these you know, associated with the you know, 20,000 TU type ships and stuff like that. Yeah, um, look, not to the same extent, but you, know, you would be surprised. I mean, we, we obviously talk about you know, the large container new buildings, the LNGs, etc. Yeah. That's an, sort of the newsworthy uh, stuff. And there you see... You tend to see the same big leasing companies, but in particular in China, you have a long list now of second-tier leasing companies that have become very, very active. And they focus on some of the uh, middle-tier companies and ships and, and are happy to provide financing into these situations. And, you know, that is an area, again, where we are very active and we are seeing some success. And uh, again, it comes at a slightly higher price point than the, and, and it should be at a slightly higher price point because it's typically not the same credit quality. Um, but it's certainly uh, financing that is widely available. And um, again, if you are, as an international owner, willing to place an order in China, there are options available to you because it's obviously in the national interest uh, of China to secure these orders. Okay, well, that's uh, good to get a picture. And looking in terms of actually this sort of where transport capital comes into this, so you're mainly involved in that sort of second tier, second hand type transactions? Yeah, I mean, you know, very candidly, the very, very strong credits in the industry, tier one, they don't need our help. They have plenty of contacts to all the big banks and the Chinese leasing companies directly. But it is the second tier. And, you know, I'm not talking about uh, companies that have three or four ships. I mean, this can be companies with 50, 60, 70 ships who maybe are faced with a situation where, you know, the banks that they have banked with traditionally, be it in Germany, be it in Greece, wherever, have exited the market. And they have to build completely new relationships. And, you know, we have built a network of offices here, which puts us in a very good position to have access to all important funding markets in the world today. And this is what we want to bring to our customer base. So, I mean, these are, by the sounds of it, quite established owners in many cases. Very much so. Um, 
What sort of structures do you work on with your clients, and what, how does this sort of financing work? It could be either it could be either loans or leases. I mean, it's not like we have a sort of a magic different formula. It's yeah. it's uh, structures that are tried and tested. But you know, you need to really understand what works where. I give you an example. Greece is a market where you would be surprised. You still have substantial owners that do not have a consolidated corporate structure. Um, so in other words, every ship through its own legal entity. And then on the side, you have a management company, but there is really no holding that will integrate the ownership of all, all their fleet. And they will continue to say today, we're not willing to provide a corporate guarantee. We consider ship finance asset finance or project finance and you know this is the only structure we will consider now for those situations you have a very very limited group of lenders that will even look at this today I mean we count five five boutique banks if we ignore the the non-bank lenders in this market um, that will even consider such uh, such uh, structures obviously at low leverage because there's no a wider corporate recourse. Then you have um, um, shipping companies that uh, have proper consolidated corporate structures, um, but that might have fallen on hard times. Um, so their financials do not look as stellar as you would like it. So they're not tier one. But if you can provide this corporate recourse, even if the financials are not in great shape, then you are opening yourself up to a wider uh, potential list of lenders or lessors. I just uh, quote as an example here, for example, the Taiwanese market. Uh, the Taiwanese market has become very, very active in, in funding um, second-hand ships for medium-sized owners. But the Taiwanese, for example, which can do both loans and leases, um, they insist on a corporate consolidated structure as, as part of uh, their deal requirements. So the point I'm making is you really need to understand, you know, what is the employment profile? What is a corporate setup? You know, what's the leverage you are targeting? You know, if you go beyond 60% leverage in today's market, you are in terms of second-hand ships, you are dealing with the alternative lenders. There is not a bank anymore that will consider you. So you need to understand what does the customer want, how is he positioned, what is his corporate setup, and then uh, you, you know, we are certainly in a position to say very, very clearly, here are you know four or five choices to you which we can which we which we can consider on your behalf. Okay, so it's. Um it's, it's basically all those companies that the, the banks would no longer look at for the various reasons of different structures and so yeah. forth. And what sort of level of financing would you provide? You said anything over 60% that for second hand the banks wouldn't touch. Yeah, I mean, look, the especially in the context of um, uh, senior secured uh, loans, 60, maximum 65% today is sort of where they go. Um, the banks, which is good, don't want to uh, end up where they ended up once in the last crisis. 
They basically take the view, this is a volatile business. We understand the asset, we understand the assets well, but you know, we don't want to extend more than 60, 65% max on the value of these ships. And then beyond that in the capital structure, you can have owner's equity, you can have, you know, private equity, you can have unsecured bonds, you can have a lot of different things. But the banks, especially the big banks that have been in shipping long, have become quite disciplined in terms of, you know, drawing a line when it comes to leverage that they provide. Looking back at the last year, it's obviously been an unusual year in many senses. What impact has that had on the ship financing sector? Well, I have to say, shipping generally and ship finance in particular has actually coped quite well with the crisis. Of course, it's a disadvantage that you can't have personal meetings, etc. But as you well know, shipping as an industry has fared better than most industries in this very difficult period for the world. And in a sort of obscure way has been one of the beneficiaries of this lockdown, etc. Um, you know, the e-commerce boom that we have witnessed. We are all seeing what's happening in the container market. There are no indications that this will change anytime soon. So it's an interesting period in that I think we all recognize that shipping as an industry has always been viewed by the world as something a bit exotic, inherently risky, and you know, over time, returns in this industry haven't been great. And that's, I think, generally a true statement. But if you look back over the last year, shipping is one of the best performing industries in the world. And that's quite remarkable and quite nice to actually be part of this industry when you can actually show that, you know, the industry has coped well. So I have not witnessed a slowdown or a particular difficulty in securing ship finance as a result of COVID. I will make one caveat. When the crisis first hit, I would broadly say first half last year, everybody was paralyzed because we didn't know where we were heading. And that certainly applied also to the ship finance providers. But as we were coming into the second half of, of last year, I think we were all getting to grips with, yes, the world will in fact continue. And from that moment onwards, financings have been closed and have been done. We have certainly been very active and have closed quite a number of financings for owners, also complex ones and larger ones. So the market is open and there is capital, as I said earlier, from very, very different sources than what we were seeing 10 years ago. But finance is available and pricing is a lot more differentiated than it used to be. It's quite nice to hear you say that shipping is one of the best performing industries. <laughs> Not a common statement in the last 20 years or so. Let's remember, we are only looking at one year. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in terms of uh, finance, one of the things that we, certainly when we go talk to the bigger players and stuff, they talk wants or want to talk a lot about is the green finance and sort of that part of thing. Does that come down to the second tier as well? Or is that very much something that just the big players are focused? I would say not yet. 
I think at the moment is clearly something that all the big banks are very preoccupied with. You can talk to any of the large shipping banks. This has a massive uh, attention in, in their organizations. I think we all recognize that shipping is clearly one of the hardest industries to decarbonize. Um, that's a fact. But I think also COVID has certainly heightened the attention dramatically on this issue. Um, and frankly, ever since COVID hit, I mean, the news flow in shipping around carbonization and ESG has dramatically increased. I mean, it, it seems to dominate every single agenda of any conference, uh, you know, um, and it's, it's, and I think it's, it's not just a fashion. It's, it's something that every shipping company should consider very, very seriously. And the financiers certainly do. And I think what ship owners will increasingly realize that the pressure grows both from the capital side and the customer side to do something meaningful will only increase. Now, the way I've said it, it's maybe too much of a negative connotation because it sounds like there's all this pressure and the poor ship owner is squeezed in the middle. I don't think that's necessarily the case because what is obviously important is that the customers or the charterers, who are the end users of the services that the industry provides, have to cooperate and have to pay their fair share of what is required here in order to make a meaningful improvement when it comes to the decarbonization of the industry. And what is interesting is that if you watch the news flow it is, in fact, a lot of the big charters and cargo owners that are making precisely these you know, noises. I mean, just picking one of the most vocal ones, Trafigura. Trafigura is very outspoken. And let's not forget, that's quite remarkable. At the heart of what Trafigura is doing, it's an oil trading company. But they seem to take this very, very serious and they are just... I think representative of a much, much larger group there. So what does that mean? I think what it means is that if you look out over a few more years, we will see much, much closer partnerships and cooperation between cargo owners and charters on the one hand and ship owners on the other. Shipping has long been dominated by a spot market culture where for a lot of ship owners, the reasons for getting into this industry is not the transportation of cargo, but, you know, buy the ship cheap and hopefully resell it in five or six years at a better price. And I think if we look out over the next 10 years, this industry structure will change dramatically. There will be a refocus on what are we actually doing? We're providing a transportation service. And I think in line with that, our employment structure for many ships will change from a spot-dominated business to more of an industrial shipping long-term contract model, which we have seen in certain asset classes for a long time. You know, only 
If I'm thinking about LNG carriers who are used to very long-term contracts, if I'm thinking about very large ore carriers who have enjoyed long-term contracts, I think we will see this increasingly across all asset classes. The industry will become more predictable, cash flows will become more predictable, and that improves the credit profile of the industry, which is a good thing. And that, frankly, is the precondition for successfully embarking on this massive decarbonization task that is ahead of us because you know if you want to make these investments into these new technologies and alternative fuels and a combination of all these things you need certain revenue security you can't just do this for the spot market and I think the charters and the customers understand that and I think they're willing to talk and I think they're increasingly willing to talk because the pressure on them to reduce emissions is just the same. So I'm actually very, very positive that this will result in meaningful and good changes for the industry and will change also the character of shipping somewhat again from a very, very speculative industry to something that is more predictable and more of an industrial model. So this would sort of change the business model for the owner who's got, say, a fleet of 25 handymaxes, for example? Well, I mean, you are obviously citing here now the sort of the most fragmented end of the market. You know, maybe we should start with, you know, medium-sized tonnage. Okay. You are at the smallest end of the market. But if you think it through, at the end, yes, I think it will affect all asset types. Obviously, some will come earlier than others. Andy-sized bulk is sort of maybe last in line, uh, given the fragment of the industry. But I think it's inevitable. And I mean, you say handy-sized bulkers, you know, what do they carry? They carry minor bulks, um, they carry fertilizers, they carry cement, they carry all kinds of stuff, where again, their customers are under massive pressure to reduce emissions. And even there, I think they will start talking to their preferred ship owners and say, look, what can we do in cooperation to improve the emission situation? So I'm actually more positive uh, maybe than, than consensus that this will dramatically accelerate over the, over the next few years and that we will make material progress. I mean, you can also see that the R&D now flowing into propulsion technologies and alternative fuels is accelerating at all levels. And I think we'll make reasonably fast progress. Because presumably from a financing perspective, it's actually a lot better if you've got that 10-year contract or whatever it is attached to the ship. Of course. I mean, you know, credit providers are first and foremost about protecting their downside. So the more security they can get, the happier they are. So. Uh, of course, if you have a 10-year contract, you know, your funding choices are vastly superior to what would be otherwise the case. And obviously, also with a 10-year contract, you can get higher leverage than uh, what you could get if you were trading spot. Where does this leave the traditional family owner in shipping? Is this like a, a, you know, a shift towards a, a real sort of corporatization of quite a lot of shipping then? Look, I think that, that trend of gravitating towards larger corporate units 
has been going on for a while and I think it will continue to go on for a while. Now, but I'm not here to forecast sort of the death of the family shipping companies because one should not underestimate that a lot of these smaller shipping companies have very valuable customer relationships. Now, let me differentiate this a little bit. If you are a ship owner that traditionally has bought a ship because you felt it was cheap and you have called Clarkson or Howe Robinson to fix it for you and you have never seen a customer um, because you have left it all to your chartering broker to fix the ships for you and then all you are doing is you are looking to resell at a later point then in my view you don't really have very valuable cargo relationships customer relationships and I think that is what is key but there are many many shipping companies private shipping companies in family hands that do have very valuable customer and cargo relationships and remember these end users of shipping services they don't want to have all their eggs in one basket either they don't want to deal just with one or two large shipping companies they like to be diversified and I think it is incumbent upon those smaller shipping companies that have these relationships to form even stronger partnerships with their customers and develop jointly projects together that make sense and at the same time help the overall industry goal of uh, reducing emissions. And I think that's entirely possible. But, you know, if I had to advise small or medium-sized shipping companies what they should do, they should spend as much time as possible with their core customers and develop new projects with them with, you know, alternative propulsion, alternative fuels, alternative whatever in order to help the customer and thereby help themselves and secure a future for them. If you look at that sort of market of refinancing and you know, second-hand tonnage, is there a role in terms of financing for retrofits and things like that to meet EX, what is it, EEXI uh, requirements and so forth that are, that are coming up? Is that something you see happening? No, we haven't seen it happening. Frankly, I think it's all very fresh still. I'm not the greatest expert on this, but I think what you will find, and that's certainly what we have seen in various discussions with ship owners when we have asked them, you know, are your ships compliant in terms of these new regulations? I think you will see that a lot of these ships will comply simply by derating the engines. Slow steaming has been going on for a while. I think many of these ships will not require a lot of capital investment or retrofit spending in order to make them compliant. So I'm not convinced, given this regulation, that the investment required is massive for this particular regulation. To answer your question more directly, I've not seen any financiers that have come up and said, you know, we want to finance your retrofit to comply with this particular regulation. I haven't seen that yet. Okay. See what transpires with that, I guess, as we go forward. Just sort of sitting here today, what's sort of next for transport capital? What's what's the year got to hold? 
Briefly, we, we have a business model here, which is financial advisory. I've talked a little bit about this uh, in terms of uh, helping companies raise capital and at the same time helping financial institutions and banks deploy capital. So that's one part of what we do. We do manage physical assets here. We have ships that we are taking care of on behalf of institutional investors. We have a full management team here, which actually goes back to the time of FSL, as I, as I mentioned earlier, when we were in the previous company, we had a full management team in place to take care of physical assets. We have moved the core team across to transport capital, and that is still the case here. So since we started this business, we have managed up to 30 ships here on behalf of various um, financial investors. So we see ourselves really as a company that works at the intersection between shipping and the capital markets. Um, we also have an aviation activity, but that's a bit smaller. And at that intersection between shipping and the capital markets, we act both as an advisor and as a manager. And when we act as a manager, we can do as much or as little as a customer wants. So we provide our services on an a la carte basis. Sometimes we get involved helping financial investors do due diligence. Sometimes they ask us, can you warehouse an asset for us for two years? It could be the whole suite of services. And this model of being a manager and an advisor has worked very well for us because through the management activity, we continue to have a very great insight into the operations of ships, which we think is important. And that in turn helps us be better advisors. So I'm a great believer in this dual model, if you will. And in terms of our office network, we have been expanding quite a lot. We have been adding people in Beijing and New York. Um, we've expanded in Hamburg. And we recognize this is a global business and funding sources and financial investors are in different locations and we need to be present in this. So we want to be a leading franchise that is focused on both real assets and the private capital markets. We don't get involved with the public markets. We're not interested in helping companies go public. There are other experts, uh, be it the Norwegian banks or the New York market. Um, we are entirely focused on the private capital markets. That's good to know. Just in terms of this year, are there any particular plans or how you see the market going? Look, I think what we have obviously witnessed over the last few months, we have witnessed a tremendous uh, party in the container sector, which is still uh, very much alive. I can't recall when we have seen these uh, ship valuations and charter rates. Um, we might be nearing all-time highs at this point. And, you know, everybody says, how long can this last? It's, it's difficult to see, but all the experts I talk to tell me, you know, they don't see the slowing down this year. We shall see where we are next year. At the same time, we have seen a massively improved dry bulk market since the beginning of the year. So that market is developing nicely. And there I would say the outlook for the next two years is probably very, very positive. If you look at the new building order book, which is relatively benign, 
And, uh, you know, if we do believe, which I do, that we are coming into a sort of global economic recovery, obviously dry bulk market should be a, a significant beneficiary of this. And frankly, as, as we are coming into this global economic recovery, I expect also the tanker market to do better, probably later on this year and certainly into next year. I haven't said this often. Happy to say that the outlook, at least over the next 12 to 24 months uh, for shipping, is, is, is very positive. And I expect a lot of activity on the commercial side, on the financial side. But I think what is good also about this, the next year or two will, I think, result in very good earnings and cash generation for a lot of shipping companies. And that should also provide liquidity in the shipping companies for attacking the decarbonization journey, which is pressing and urgent. And as always, you cannot in an industry just rely on external funding sources. You also need to generate earnings in the industry in order to fund at least partially this very, very important development. So yeah, I'm pleased to say that um, I'm, I'm fairly positive about the industry as a whole for, for the next 12 to 24 months. That's uh, really nice to hear and um, a really great sort of place to wrap up on and a nice positive note to, to look forward to. So thank you very much for your time today, Philip. Sure, my pleasure.